0: Hmm. what's Geogram? I don't know. Maybe it's Geogram? How about Geogram? With A.L. Wicks. Or is it Al Wicks? Just call me Ali. And it's Geogram. Welcome to Geogram, the podcast that combines the geography and grammar of the English language. I'm your host, fantasy and young adult author A.L. Wicks. On this podcast, we're filling in the map of the English language with a treasure trove of grammar rules and fascinating facts. You can always find the show notes and transcripts at plopletop.com geogram. Today is all about cops and detectives, the lingo they use, the nicknames we give them, and one of the phrases that they've added to the English language. Then I've got a section on elementary and cemetery and some tips on how to remember to spell them. In the news section, we'll be taking a look at the National Book Festival, put on by the Library of Congress, and Storyville Gardens. And since this is the last podcast for August, I'll give you a quick update on my writing projects. All of that coming up. The other day, I used a phrase, and my husband stared at me, and he told me he'd never heard of it and had no idea what it meant. The phrase was, to suss out. When I stopped to think of it "suss out is a pretty odd phrase and the word sus is kind of a strange word so where did they come from I ended up going down an interesting rabbit hole to chase this one down it does not have anything to do with the county of Sussex in England it does not have anything to do with the Sussex Spaniel which is a short stocky dog that was used for hunting but in a way both of these are not far off the mark because the city of London sits just north of the county of Sussex where the Sussex Spaniel originated and Sherlock Holmes lived in London, fictionally, of course, at 221 Baker Street. And even though Sherlock Holmes never used the phrase "suss out because it came 50 years after the fictional detective chased down his last suspect, if he had lived longer in his fictional setting, he most certainly would have used this phrase. I'm sure you've guessed it by now. "Suss" is a term that originated as detective jargon for suspect. According to the Online Etymology Dictionary, Sus originated around 1953 as a slang shortening of the word suspect, and it meant to suspect, though its full definition and use included the thought process and the investigation in sorting things out. A detective may have said, he's my sus, or the one the detective suspected, or he or she may have said, I've got to suss this out, meaning to figure out, investigate, and discover who the suspect was and what happened. However, even though the phrase to suss out didn't show up until around 1953, there was a law in England and Wales that dates all the way back to 1824, which was actually known as the Suss Law. It was an abbreviation of Suspected Person Law, and it was a stop and search law as part of a vagrancy act. So Sherlock Holmes may have said Suss Law, but he never would have said he needed to suss out something. Eventually, it did move into more common use by non-detectives. For example, a boy might say, I'm trying to suss out what she meant by that. Or a girl might say, If I could just suss out the meaning behind his offer. Or a parent might say, If I could only suss out what my child really needs. On that note, what are some other words that the world of detective or policing work give us? First up, we have Scotland Yard. Many of you may remember watching the original cartoon version of 101 Dalmatians. In that movie, they frequently mention Scotland Yard. I remember seeing that movie as a kid, and even though I'd never heard of Scotland Yard, I figured it must mean something like a police or a detective, even though I had no idea how a yard had anything to do with police. Scotland Yard is the name of the headquarters for the Metropolitan Police Force, which is responsible for policing London. It's a territorial force, meaning they aren't responsible for anything outside the their assigned territory, the 32 boroughs of the City of London. Have you ever heard the phrase, the fuzz? In the first year or two after my husband and I were married, we spent about a weekend a month at his parents' house. At the time, they lived pretty high up on the side of a mountain, and they had a fantastic view of the valley. It was not uncommon for my husband and his two brothers to pull out a pair of binoculars to scan the valley for the fuzz, especially at night. Apparently, they liked the flashing blue and red lights of cop cars. This was new to me. I'd never heard the police referred to as the fuzz before. I'd grown up in the West of America, and my husband and his brothers had mostly grown up on the East Coast, so I thought maybe it was a common term in the East, but none of them knew why they used the fuzz to refer to cops. Of course, I had to see if I could find the origin of the phrase. Unfortunately, there's no clear etymology of the word. The online etymology dictionary says that its usage for police is only used in American English and that the, the origin of the term is unknown, though they do conjecture that it may be a variant of fuss from the term fussy, meaning hard to please. It could also be because of the fuzzy hat some cops wore in cold climates or because of fuzzy short haircuts that some police employed. It also could be a shortened term for the force. Sad to say, no one is really sure. Here's one that's much better documented, A-K-A. It's an acronym for also known as, referring to an alias or another name that a person may go by. A pen name is technically an alias since it's another name that an author uses for legal purposes to hold the copyright of the books published under that name. An alias is typically used when someone wants to start a new identity for themselves. In the past, that was a lot easier. You would just need to show up in a new town and claim your name was something different. Voila, new identity, new life. The only way you'd be outed is if someone who knew you in your previous life found you. Think of The Music Man from 1962. Professor Harold Hill shows up to a new town in Iowa and he finds one of his old friends there, Marcellus, who is working in the town stables. The first thing Marcellus does is call Professor Harold Hill by his original name, Greg or at least the original name that Marcellus knew him as. Nowadays, it's much harder to completely reinvent yourself because there are too many things that are attached to you that follow you around throughout your life and identify you from the moment you're born. However, pen names and other aliases can still be useful and are more frequently employed in the entertainment industry than you might think. Next in line, What in the world is the detective's curse? It turns out it's the feeling that clues are right under your nose, but you can't quite put it together. You can't quite see the picture. So the case continues to go unsolved for however long the facts elude you. Bill Stein, a former Air Force secretary, augmentee, and third-generation law enforcement officer, wrote a fantastic piece on the detective's curse on Quora. He said, quote, the detective is never fortunate enough to have the solution right under his nose. From what I know of actual detectives, he said he was raised by one, the clues aren't elusive. They're right there, staring you plainly in the face. It is the facts, on the other hand, that take a great deal of work to find and often are still elusive, end quote. Then he gives a slightly different definition of the detective's curse that seems just a bit more on the nose. Quote, the detective's curse, therefore, in my opinion, is knowing exactly who did it and how they did it, but being unable to prove it with hard evidence and having the establishment try to thwart your efforts at every turn. End quote. The detective's curse, indeed. I just wanted to take a quick moment in between our two educational sections to tell you that we have a Patreon set up for this podcast. You can go to patreon.com geogram, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash g-e-o-g-r-a-m. Even if you only pledge a dollar a month, that will help us make sure we get this podcast really rolling and as high quality as possible. As a homeschooling teacher mom, I'm hoping there will be lots of parents who find this to be educational value for their kids and themselves. I hope that even my small news briefs of the book world will be interesting and informative to kids. It's never too early to help your little entrepreneur learn a bit of business lingo. Another way you can help us get a good start is to leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. And thank you. There's quite a lot of lingo amongst police officers and detectives. A lot of it is highly regional, developed as officers of different units communicate with each other. But here are a few fun, or at least interesting, examples. For some units, the LT, or LT, refers to the police lieutenant. An area where a lot of people get caught speeding and thus get issued tickets that bring in money to the county may be called a duck pond, a cherry patch, or a cash register, for obvious reasons and tango seems to be a fairly frequently used word that is a fast-hand way of saying thank you. To finish up, I wanted to cover a few other nicknames for those who do policing work. I have four more for you besides fuzz, and the last one in the list might surprise you. Calling a police officer a Barney originated with the deputy sidekick character Barney Fife in the old classic American TV series The Andy Griffith Show. He somehow managed to be both incompetent and overzealous, but in the most comedic and best way, and he remains a beloved figure in American entertainment history, and probably even better remembered than the title character, Andy Griffith. Another nickname for police officers comes to us from Canada. The Mounties refer specifically to police who patrol from atop their trusty mounts, their horses, and for those who are in particularly rural areas, there's the County Mountie. Similar to the County Mountie is the Local Yokel which also plays on alliteration. It refers to a police officer or sheriff's deputy who serves in a small town or rural area. The kind of officer who stops in at the local cafe, knows everybody in town and what everybody typically does. The definition of a yokel is a naive or gullible inhabitant of a rural area. But this nickname doesn't throw scorn so much as it's just referring to someone who serves and protects in a rural town, though it is sometimes used in a mildly derogatory way. And the last nickname on the list is Cop. Who knew? Yes, this is a nickname, and it's a derivative of a previous nickname, Coppers, which referred to the copper-colored name badge that police officers wore. So if you thought you'd never used a nickname for police officers, you probably have without even knowing it. There are at least 200 nicknames for cops. I'll put a link to one such list in the show notes and transcript. As you can imagine, not all of them are flattering since the nicknames are often created by those that are unhappy about having cops around. However, there are a couple more that are positive, including the boys in blue for their blue uniforms and cherry toppers for the red lights on top of their squad cars. No matter how many nicknames they have now, someone will surely come up with another one to add to the list. In the books by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes says elementary quite a lot, though he never actually says the famous phrase, elementary, my dear Watson. Another word that appears fairly frequently in detective books like Sherlock Holmes is cemetery, either because suspicious things happen around cemeteries or because a cemetery holds clues on gravestones or in records that help a detective to solve a case. One of these words, elementary, has two E's and then an A. The other word, cemetery, contains only E's. So how do you keep it straight so that next time you don't have to rely on spell checker to sort it out for you? Think of it this way. Cemetery is spelled C-E-M-E-T-E-R-Y. All E's for the vowels. That's because all the changes one encounters throughout life are done when one gets to the cemetery. No changing of vowels in the word cemetery either. All E's, nothing else. On the other hand, elementary can mean something is basic or right at the beginning like a child who is just starting at an elementary school. So you have the word element, E-L-E-M-E-N-T, but then you have a change in the vowel used, A-R-Y. Because when you're at the beginning, you have a lot of learning and a lot of changing to do before you get to the cemetery. In book news this week, the Library of Congress has released the schedule for its National Book Festival, which will take place over the course of 10 days from September 17th to the 26th. Despite being billed as a hybrid event, it's actually primarily a virtual event. There are only two in person events taking place over the full 10 days, one on the 21st and the other on the 25th. Pretty much every event is being called an author conversation, so I'm guessing it'll be something like the How I Built a Business interviews, where an author will tell how they got to where they got to, how they built a literary career, what got them writing, and any advice they have for those who are coming behind them. Other than the two in-person events, the rest of the festival is entirely virtual, which doesn't much excite me, to be honest. Though with over 100 authors participating, there are several notable names, so be sure to check out the link in the show notes to see if your favorite author will be a part of it. Nashville, Tennessee is about to get its own family-friendly storybook theme park called Storyville Gardens. The founder and CEO of Storyville Gardens is Delisa Garrier, and in a video on the Storyville Garden website, she says, quote, I am building a theme park based on stories and books from all over the world with the intent to ignite the desire to read beyond what's required in the classroom, end quote. They have a nonprofit arm that includes a literacy center to help children who are underserved and are struggling with meeting their grade level reading requirements. It is an, quote, imagination driven, interactive environment destination where stories engage and connect visitors with a sense of adventure, fantasy and fun, end quote. I took a look at the video and the 3D renderings that you see in the introduction are pretty amazing. If they can pull it off, I think it'll be a really fun place to go. My family has been to the fairy tale town next to the Sacramento Zoo in California, and I imagine Storyville Gardens will be something like that, though perhaps, hopefully, a little bit more extensive. But if you're ever in Sacramento with your kids, you should still definitely check out. Every week, I hope to avoid the use of the word Amazon in the news section, and it seems like every week, I still have something I feel like I should talk about. This week, I have two items, and neither of them bode very well for the book industry, to be honest. The first comes to us courtesy of Medium.com. It's from an article titled, Every Book Lover Should Fear This Graph. What it shows is that Amazon's share of book sales over the past six years, with the same growth projected into the future. Remember, extrapolation is always an imprecise science, but you should take a look at the graph anyway. In 2015, Amazon's share of book sales was around 38%. That's a high enough margin compared to how many booksellers there are, or were. In 2019, that percentage of sales had reached right to 50%. And in 2020, last year, Amazon crossed that line and became the majority seller of books at around 54%. More than 50% of the book market sales happening on one platform. I I really feel like it's time to do something to help turn that around. Maybe it's easier said than done, but I really do think it can be done. For example, I still buy some things on Amazon, like gluten-free ingredients that I have a hard time getting elsewhere, and that sort of thing, but I no longer buy a single book or puzzle or game or textbook on Amazon unless it's the only place I can find it, and that's after I check bookshop.org, abooks.com, eBay, Barnes & Noble, um, thriftbooks.com, uh, Better World Books, Blackwell's. And if all of those fail, I can always go to Indie Commerce and IndieBound and check out the shops of each independent bookseller on there. And there are quite a few. And I hope you start to do this too. Just take a couple of minutes and maybe make a bookmark list for yourself. Some of them even have an app like ThriftBooks and BookScouter that you can put right on your phone. For audiobooks, you can use Scribd, Audiobooks.com, or ChirpBooks. I said in an earlier episode that I would probably try Audible Plus, which is Amazon's on-demand audiobook subscription service at some point, but I don't think I will anymore. I just really, really don't think it's wise to give anyone or any company so much power, especially in the book industry. If you really love books and the book industry, i hope you'll join me. And before you think, but everything is cheapest on Amazon. I can tell you that's definitely not the case. I've taken a good look around and Amazon's prices are sometimes a dollar or two lower and sometimes they're a dollar or two higher. In fact, in January of this year, a lawsuit was filed against Amazon that alleged a pricing deal between Amazon and the top five publishers, the top five trade publishers. That's basically a charge of collusion for price fixing, which is a pretty serious allegation. I'm just going to quote a little bit from the article, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal and a few other sites. Quote, Amazon.com Inc., which originally came up with the idea of charging bargain basement prices for e-books, for electronic books, is now being accused of forcing customers on other book sites to pay much more for them. I mean, that's the real kicker there. How can Amazon cause e-book pricing on other sites to be pushed up? Well, this is what they allege happened. Again, quoting from the Wall Street Journal article, quote, a lawsuit filed Thursday in a federal district court in New York alleges that a deal between Amazon and five major book publishers has led to higher ebook prices for all consumers because it prevents rival retailers from selling any of these publishers' ebooks at a lower price than on Amazon. So basically, it sounds like the deal is that Amazon gets to set the price and then no one else can sell it for a lower price on their websites not even the big five publishers. And I would—I have no idea why they would even agree to a deal like this if it prevents them from being able to control prices on their own websites. The number one thing I get from this article is that if the big five publishers agree to this pricing thing with Amazon, that shows that there's Amazon has a pretty incredible amount of power in the book industry. So let's not give them any more, shall we? Besides, bookshop.org and some of the other sites are pretty amazing places to shop. It's the last Tuesday of the month, so that means a writing update instead of the what I'm loving or reading section. I'm planning on getting some progress bars added to my website for each of my writing projects in case anyone is interested in keeping an eye on those, and hopefully that's been managed by the time this podcast goes live. Anyway, I've also had a bit of a personal setback. It's technically a good one in a way, but it definitely has made things a little bit more complicated. So just for a quick rundown. In Gallen Parker Book 2, I'm closing in on the two-thirds point, but I'm starting to realize that this book may end up being anywhere between five to 10,000 words longer than I set my target for. It's a big story, and it's been incredibly fun to write, so we'll see where it ends up at. In The Lucky Hedgehog, I'm just under the halfway mark at 20,700 words out of an estimated 45,000 words. In Silas and the Paper Airplane, I'm still pretty early on, around 5,000 words out of an estimated 51,000. I'm really enjoying my writing a lot. I think my biggest problem is the rabbit holes I go down during my research. It's just really important to me to get details and settings right, to really capture the feel of the place where something is set and what the people are like at that time and, and place. For example, in The Lucky Hedgehog, it's set in the 1920s in Bronx, New York. I've analyzed dozens and dozens of pictures. I've listened to old recordings. I've watched old footage. I've read so many articles from newspapers of the time period and of people's recollections. It's been fascinating, but it all takes time and I have to try really hard not to let the research dominate so that I can actually make some progress in the writing side of things. In any case, I have deadlines to meet and I'm working hard to get there. If you want to see the progress bars, just go to alwix.com. Coming up next time. Yes, I've used some pretty weird words in some of my books. Many of them I've made up, but almost all of them are based on actual words. Today, I'm going to talk about two of them, choir and wabbit, which I, I have a hard time saying without laughing, so I feel bad for my audiobook narrator. Until next time, finish a book, leave a review, and pick up another one. You can find me on social media as alwix or the ALWix, or you can reach me at alwix at protonmail.com. If you'd like, you can also write to my publisher, Ploppletop Publishing, at contactus at ploppletop.com, and thanks to them for their support. Please take a moment to give this podcast a five-star rating and subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. Our theme song is Time for Supper by Golden Age Radio. All other music and sounds are from Epidemic Sound. If you're unable to find this podcast on any podcast app, please drop us a line and let us know so we can make sure it's as widely available as possible. Transcripts and show notes, including links to all news stories and research I reference, are available at ploppletop.comslash geogram. And thanks for listening.